All right. Well, this morning, we are going to be looking at a story in the Bible where Jesus brings back to life that which is dead. In fact, he does it in such a dramatic way that those who believe that he was the God or is the God of miracles believe that this was a miracle that was beyond his ability to do. And so in this story, we're going to see how Jesus raises the dead, demonstrating his authority over the grave. And this actually is a precursor to his own death and resurrection. In fact, this story that we're going to look at, it actually initiates the final stage of Jesus's ministry, the fulfillment of everything he came to do, offering us life through his death. And so Jesus conquers the grave, showing that he alone is the master of life and death. Before we go in any further, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful that we can come together. We can be your body. We can be your bride. We can be the church. And God, as we put ourselves in a posture this morning to learn from you, to receive from you, God, I pray that anything that is consuming our thoughts, anything that is consuming our hearts, that we would surrender those things over to you. God, would you put us in a posture where we can receive from you? We want to hear from you this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. You would speak. You would illuminate our minds. You would soften our hearts. And you would move what we hear from you beyond our heads into our hearts. And, Father, out into our hands and feet as we live our faith out in this world. God, we are not interested in information this morning. What we want is transformation. And so, Father, would you transform us? Would you change us? Would we become the people you have created us to be? And so we submit ourselves under your care and under your teaching today. God, anything that is of me, would that quickly be forgotten? We just want to hear from you today. And so would you speak to us and give us ears to hear? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, please get those out and turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to be spending our time there this morning. And just a couple of comments to kind of orient ourselves to this gospel. Uh, first of all, the early church kind of viewed the gospel of John's author as John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple of Jesus, who was not only part of the twelve, but he was also part of the three, this inner circle of Jesus. You often will hear in the gospels Peter, James, and John. And so this is who we're talking about. And the disciple of Jesus was such a close companion, he was such a close eyewitness to Jesus, that he actually gained the nickname, the disciple who Jesus loved. And in fact, he records that of himself five times throughout the Gospel of John, which I find kind of humorous. And I can almost, I don't know about you, but I kind of picture these other conversations in the Gospel. Like imagine Peter and John kind of getting into it, and John saying, yeah, you know, Peter, sure, you've walked on water, but hey, I'm the disciple. Who Jesus loves. Jesus loves me. I don't know, but maybe that happened. But you know, when we read John's gospel, it introduces us to the Son of God who steps into human history, who takes on flesh in order to point us to the Father, but also to fulfill the Father's plan. The plan is this, to conquer death so that we can have new life. Now, the Gospel of John, it actually contains seven miracles of Jesus, which are recorded in order to fulfill the purpose that he kind of writes about at the end of the Gospel. In John 20, 31, it says this. It says that these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so the miracles that are recorded are given to us as evidence of the authority that Jesus has to save people, not only from their sickness, but also from their sin. And the seven miracles that he includes in this gospel are these. He turns water into wine, the first miracle, healing an official son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, restoring a man's sight who was born blind. And then the final miracle that we're going to look at this morning, and that is Jesus raising Lazarus back to life. And in Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, this is a declaration that Jesus is the master of life and death. And so coming to our text in John chapter 11, he begins with this statement. It says, and a man named Lazarus was sick. And as you keep reading the introduction, we learn that Lazarus was actually a brother of Mary and Martha. This was a family. They lived in Bethany, a little village about three kilometers east of Jerusalem. And so Jesus, having traveled to Jerusalem many times, he would have visited this little village, and this is likely how he got to be close friends with this family. In fact, three times in this chapter, we learn of the love that Jesus has for this family who were very special to him. In fact, Mary that's described here is the same Mary that later on, she anoints Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And so right away, we learn that these are not simply casual, but these are close friends of Jesus. In fact, they were like family to him. And understanding this relationship, it actually kind of sets the emotional tone for Jesus to receive the word, to receive the news that his close friend, Lazarus, the one that he loved, was sick. In fact, when the messenger finally arrives, and he talks about Lazarus, he doesn't even use Lazarus' name. Instead, he simply says, Lord, the one you love is sick. I'm sure many of you have probably received that dreaded phone call informing you that a loved one that you had was very sick or has been in a bad accident. And you know, when we receive news like this, we can't seem to think about anything else except for the person that we love. You know, your concern for that person consumes your thoughts. You leave work early, you book a flight, you jump in your car, you do whatever you need to do in order to be with the person that you love, to be with them who needs you the most. This is what most people would do for the one they love, except Jesus. You see, in the story, Jesus does not drop everything. He doesn't clear his schedule. He doesn't rush off to be with his friend. In verse 6, we learn that when he heard the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus waits for two days before responding, but why the delay? You know, on the surface, it kind of appears that Jesus doesn't care for his close friend that needs him in this moment. You know, if Jesus could have compassion on a crowd of strangers, a hungry crowd of strangers, clearly he could have compassion for one of his close friends who is like a brother to him. And you know, when we read this in the Gospels, this is actually one of the parts of the story that concerns us. But as we take a closer look, we actually begin to understand the purpose behind Jesus' delay. First of all, Jesus delays because Lazarus was already dead, likely before Jesus had even received this news. You know, in verse 11, we're told that when Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus actually had been dead for four days. 
And so when you do the math and you understand the geography a little bit, it actually becomes clear what's going on here. In John chapter 10, we learn that Jesus was actually staying just past the Jordan River on the other side where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And this location was only a one-day journey to Bethany where Lazarus was. And so it would have taken this messenger one day to get to Jesus. He remained where he was for two more days before taking the one-day journey back to Bethany where Lazarus was. And so for Lazarus to have been dead for four days when Jesus arrives means that he likely died when the messenger was on route, before Jesus had even received the news. And this actually becomes even more clear. The fact is that Jesus actually knew that Lazarus was dead because he was given this information through special knowledge by the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, he begins to explain to his disciples what he already knows to be true himself, that Lazarus was already dead. So even if Jesus immediately left for Bethany, his friend, when he arrived, would have been dead and buried in a tomb for two days. And so Jesus' delay, it actually didn't change the outcome in any way, but also it was not a reflection of his lack of compassion. It was not a reflection of the lack of compassion that Jesus had, because we're told three times in this story that Jesus had this incredible love, a deep love for this family. And Jesus' love was not limited to this family, but in fact, it was his motivation behind his entire life and his entire ministry. Jesus was motivated by love. John 3.16, we learn that Jesus came because God so loved the world that he sent his son as a sacrifice for our sin. John chapter 13, right before, the night before Jesus' own death, Jesus' heart for people had not changed. He loved his followers. It says in the text, he loved his followers right to the very end. And so the fact that Jesus waits for two additional days is not because of a lack of love for people, but it actually serves a much larger purpose that he's about to reveal. You know, the truth is that some of you in this room have been waiting for Jesus to show up in a particular area of need in your life. And I want to encourage you that in the waiting, we need to remember to hold on to the truth that the love of God has never changed for us. God loves you. God is for you. He is with you. He wants to meet you in the waiting for you to experience that unusual peace that passes all understanding, a peace that allows you to rest in the knowledge that whatever the outcome is, that he is good, that he is God, and that he will work all things for his good and for his glory and in his time. This is the purpose that we see in the waiting in the story of Lazarus. You know, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 4 that the purpose behind this sickness is yet another opportunity for God's glory to be displayed through his Son. Jesus is about to be glorified not only in Lazarus' life, but actually in his own, because as he returns to the outskirts of Jerusalem, he kind of initiates his own death. It's a series of events that begins that leads to his own death on a cross. In fact, the disciples are fully aware of this risk for Jesus of returning to Jerusalem. They know the religious leaders have already tried to arrest him. They know the crowds have already tried to stone him. Even Thomas, we, call, we talk about Thomas being doubting Thomas. Even Thomas knows the cost of following Jesus. He says in verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. And so Lazarus was already dead. 
But this leads to another reason why Jesus delays, and it has to do with the number of days that Lazarus had been dead. You see, there's a common Jewish belief at this time that a dead person's soul would actually hover over their body for three days following their death, hoping to re-enter before departing when the body began to decompose. And this actually fits if you understand the common Jewish practice of mourning, because the first three days of mourning were considered very heavy mourning. You know, we don't deal that well with death often. As a culture, we tend to be a lot more private about our feelings, but for these Jews, mourning was anything but a private ordeal. There would have been very loud wailing and crying, people beating their chests, and all of this happened while they were surrounded by family and friends, those who were the closest to them, except in this case, Jesus, who shows up late for the funeral. But when he finally arrives on day four, any hope of Lazarus coming back to life would have been lost by the people. But of course, we understand biology a little bit more today, don't we? I don't know if any of you have seen the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. Anybody here see this movie? Great movie, one of my favorites. But you know, unlike Miracle Max's understanding of biology, Lazarus was not mostly dead, but Lazarus was most certainly dead. But for the sake of his disciples, for the sake of his friends, and for the glory of God, Jesus waits until day four to show that he is the master of life and death. No one is beyond his reach. All right, let's pick up the text in verse 20. As he arrives, it says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. And so Martha, she learns that Jesus has arrived, and she actually leaves her home to go out and meet him. And this is a bit of an important detail, because in leaving her home, during the first seven days of grieving, this was actually a very unusual thing for her to do. It was very customary to remain home, to remain seated, and guests would come to you bringing you food bringing you their sympathies. And so Martha, going to Jesus, shows a great deal of respect and a great deal of honor. And she, when, when she meets Jesus, you can almost hear the pain in her words. Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. You know, Martha is honest with Jesus. She brings her broken heart to him. She brings her disappointment, her questions, her what ifs. You know, what if you just come faster? What if we had sent words sooner? And I'm sure for many of you, when you've gone through difficult circumstances, maybe you yourself have gotten stuck in a cycle of what ifs. Maybe you have been stuck in a cycle of what ifs. You know, what if God had not allowed that thing to happen to me or my family? What if I had prayed more? What if I just trusted you more? You know, what if you had provided more? God, what if you had healed? You know, the truth is that Jesus can handle our what-ifs. 
Jesus can handle our raw and our real questions of the heart. I want you to listen to Psalm 10, this lament from the psalmist. It says this in verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, the Psalms are filled with these unfiltered, honest prayers of the heart to God. You know, the fact is that God understands that lament is part of the human experience, which is why he includes it as a major theme in the book of Psalms. It's actually given to us by God to be used in our regular worship of him. In fact, David, who wrote the majority of the Psalms, he actually is called a man after God's own heart because he was the kind of person who brought his honest heart to God. You know, 1 Peter 5, 7, it invites us to bring our difficulties to God. It says, cast all your anxieties, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Friends, Jesus cares about our troubles. He cares about the things that rob you of your joy, and he invites us to unburden those things on him. Now, it's important for us to note in the story that in the questioning, Martha does not lose her faith. She, she knows that Jesus can handle her questions, and even if the outcome doesn't go the way she's hoping for, she trusts that Jesus is going to take care of things. She trusts Jesus with the outcome. Seeing that she has not lost her faith, Jesus actually begins setting the scene for a showdown that he is about to have with death itself. Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. But Martha, Martha completely misses what Jesus is trying to communicate. He views her words as simply comfort, talking about the future resurrection that one day will come. But Jesus is not talking about any type of future resurrection, but the resurrection he's talking about is one that is coming a lot quicker than she expects. And then Jesus tells her one of the most famous I am statements of the entire book of John. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Now please note that Jesus doesn't say, I provide resurrection, but instead he says, I am the resurrection. See, freedom from death is not a thing to be had. Friends, it's a person to be known. See, we are not having resurrection and new life because we place our faith in a process. We have it because we place our faith in a person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he is going to prove it in this story by shutting down this funeral. So after Martha gets this news, she runs and she gets her sister Mary, and we actually see the same scene unfold again with the same statement again. Mary also says, Lord, if you had just been here. And Mary is followed by the entire funeral procession. All the guests are now there. Everyone knows that Jesus is there. And let's continue in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And so just try to picture the scene. They're surrounded by the wailing of the grieving guests. You know, we actually see this emotional response of Jesus in the shortest verse of the Bible. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And hey, if you are not good at Bible memorization, I would encourage you to start here. This is a good verse to add to your list of verses. Verse 35, Jesus wept. But there's another emotion that's going on in this story that begins to build up within Jesus. In verse 33, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit 
and troubled. And the spirit that's referred here is not talking about the Holy Spirit, but it's actually talking about the very core and very essence of who Jesus is. In fact, the Greek word that we get from deeply move, it actually renders as outrage or anger. That's interesting. What is Jesus angry about? Well, it can't be at the grieving guests because he stands and he weeps alongside them in solidarity. It can't be that. But think about this. Jesus, seeing the devastation of the curse of sin and its consequences of death, and thinking about that, he has had enough of this enemy that has no place in the perfect creation, and it will have no place in the new creation of God. Jesus' anger, it seems to be directed at death itself, and so he tells the people, take me to the tomb. Verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. The Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By, the time, by this time, there's a bad odor, for he's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his, fan, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, go, take off his grave clothes and let him go. You know, when they first arrive at the scene, Martha, she tries to stop Jesus. Jesus, you're too late. Jesus, he's been in there for four days. There's no point. There's no hope. Jesus, his body has begun to decompose, but Jesus says, take away the stone, stand back, and watch the glory of God. See, after he prays to the Father, Jesus shouts with one loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of that grave, proving that Jesus is the master of life and death. I mean, anybody here wish they could have just been there to see this? I mean, come on. You know, when I think about this story, the same question that Jesus asks Martha is really the same question that Jesus asks you and he asks me. In verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says this question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is not talking about physical death. I mean, even Lazarus would have eventually died again. The man with two funerals, that could be another message another day. But Jesus is talking about life eternal with him. But here's the real truth, I think, behind this story, friends, is that I am Lazarus, and so are you. You know, before Jesus saved me, I was a dead man walking, wrapped in grave clothes and headed for death, a separation from God. And the sin in my life was like a giant gravestone that was keeping me in spiritual darkness and separating me from a relationship with God. But one day Jesus changed all that. You know, his death on a cross effectively removed that stone, and I learned of his love, and I responded to his invitation to walk out of that grave, to walk out of spiritual darkness into the light of Christ's love and his life. And through faith, Jesus changed my life. I was forgiven. I was set free. I was made noon. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus' entire life and ministry was preparing him for. And it's what the entire story of Scripture 
points to, it's a story of a God who invites all people to be free from sin and death, to walk out of that grave, to be given new life by believing in Jesus. And so the question is, do you believe? Do you believe? You know, I don't know about you, but I remember the moment when I said yes to Jesus and he changed my life forever. And this morning could be that very moment for some of you here today. You know, the Holy Spirit has this way of speaking to our hearts and impressing on us the weight of his love and his mercy. And this morning, if you've been feeling the Holy Spirit prompting you, I'm going to encourage you in a moment to respond. I actually want to encourage you to come to the front right up here to the cross during our last song in a posture of wanting to receive from Jesus. And as you do that, the prayer team in a moment, they're going to come up here. They're going to stand with you. They're going to pray with you as you say yes to Jesus and yes to the new life that he's offering you today. But I realize that many of you have already received this invitation. You've actually walked out of the grave of your sin at some point in your past. You've accepted this invitation of Jesus to be free, but for whatever reason, you're not living like you are free. Maybe for some of you, you're still hanging around the grave and still wearing the grave clothes of your past. You see, in the story, Jesus actually tells Lazarus to remove his grave clothes so that he can be dressed like the living, not be dressed like the dead. See, Jesus doesn't want you to just be free. He actually wants you to live like you are free. He actually wants you to cast off the grave clothes of your past. He wants you to be made new. Jesus is offering you new clothes. <laughs> He's actually offering you to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to call the band forward just to help us conclude this morning. I'm going to call up the prayer team as well this time. If you're on the prayer team, they're going to come to the front and be prepared to help us respond. I want to read for you the first three verses of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. It says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Friends, Jesus doesn't just want you to be free. He actually wants you to live like you are free. He wants you to put off the grave clothes of your past and put on the new self in Christ. And so this morning, if you're tired of being in spiritual darkness, this morning, if you want to walk out of that grave of sin and death and receive new life in Jesus, I want to encourage you to come to the front, come up here to the cross during this final song. But for those of you who have walked out of that grave, but you've been walking around wearing the grave clothes of your past, maybe this morning you're tired of wearing the weight of that. You're tired of bearing the burden of that. You're tired of being held back by that. And you want to lay those down and be free. You want to lay those down and not only be free, but live like you are free. This morning, I want to encourage you to also come to the front. Our prayer team will be here. They will pray with you. They will pray for you as you give your life over to Jesus. And so, why don't we stand together? And if you've been sensing the Spirit speaking to your heart, I want to encourage you right now to come to the front. Come right now, be free, and live in the freedom that Christ has died to give for you. Come right now. Let's worship together.